auditors need to stop being the inspection department that comes in after the problems have already occurred and start being there to fix problems so they don't happen in the future. And then I got into studying and researching behavioral ethics, and I have just found my passion over the last four years. You're listening to Joe Irvin, an author, trainer, and speaker on internal audit and ethics. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. What happens, I think, in society is we forget about ethics in the small things, and it's a slippery slope. Ethics is very personal. I tell people that every single day. In this episode, we discuss how she transitioned from internal audit to ethics training, using internal audit to contribute to a company's success, becoming an everyday ethicist, and her motivation to be an author and speaker. She's an author, speaker, trainer, and president of Audit Consulting Education. She also has a CPA license, certified in internal audit, and a certified fraud examiner. Amanda Jo Irvin, welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Thank you so much. I am thrilled to be here with you today. Thanks for inviting me. Thank you, Joe. I know you go by Joe. I do appreciate you being on the podcast. We met at the ACFE conference in Nashville and had a great time listening to your speeches as well as getting to know you a little bit outside the conference. It was great to meet you. And how many times can you say you got to do an escape room at a conference and meet new people from a social aspect? I think uh, I, that was fun that we got to do that together, too. Well, the escape room was great, uh, but that was my first one. So I, yes. I I was like, you know, the guy in the back going, I think I see a clue, but I really don't want to say much, but you know. <laughs> I, I gotcha. So you are a CPA, CIA, and is also CFE. Why did you pursue an accounting career? So you, this is going to sound like I'm a total nerd, but I absolutely loved my principles of accounting class. First one in college loved my professor, loved debits and credits. See, I know that sounds like I'm a total nerd. I promise I'm not. I think a teacher in a class can change the trajectory of your life. And that's what happened to me with principles of accounting. And funny enough, that is the class I teach. At, um, I've taught it at a couple of universities. That's my favorite class to teach right now as an adjunct professor too. So I have continued to love principles of accounting. So that's why I started. But when you started your college career or started getting an education in business, was that the main purpose behind this or you just kind of fell into principles of accounting? I'm telling you, I, I fell into it. I, I always knew that I was going to go the business school route. I think that has to do with probably uh, my dad's influence, my older brother's influence. You know, I knew business school, but I thought that I would land in like marketing, advertising, something like that uh, to use my creative side of my brain a little bit. Uh, more than you can in accounting. I would say uh, creative accounting is what I try to avoid. Yeah. But so I was surprised that I went the accounting route, honestly, but I always knew it would be something in business. Uh, so you got an accounting degree and what did you do right after that? I stayed an extra year, got that master's in accounting because I wasn't ready to leave college yet, like some people. So I did the five-year program. And then I did what a lot of, I think, college grads still do today. I went into public accounting. So I went straight into external audit. 
uh, with one of the big four firms. And, you know, that's where I started, but I will tell you, I didn't last very long in that position. Uh, that was my first step. And then I quickly, about a year later, moved into internal audit where I spent most of my career. And the internal audit, what exactly did you do an internal audit? Yeah, so I uh, took a job with a large international financial services company. So mainly in financial services, we had investment business. Um, it was retirement, uh, retirement 401k company, annuities. So uh, I worked my way up from senior auditor to internal audit director by the time I left there four years ago. Did everything from operational to financial to a little bit of IT throughout that about 11 years at that company. And sooner or later, you started getting into niche into ethics. How did you transition from the internal audit world, accounting, CPA numbers, and into the ethics field? Great, great question. Very first book slash training, and I'm going to say slash training because it started as training, a training, not a book, was about the six important key points of focus I think we need to look at as internal auditors. And the very first one is auditing ethics and culture within your organization. And so I will say that very first chapter is foundational to my internal audit practice. And it is really foundational to where I found my niche. Everybody loved hearing about how to audit ethics. And then I got into studying and researching behavioral ethics. And I have just found my passion over the last four years. But that is truly how it started with how do we audit ethics? And then moved into, okay, now I want to talk to everybody about personal ethics. So it's kind of transitioned over the last four years. I'll be honest with you. When I think ethics classes, I'm like, oh, this is going to be so boring. You do your two <laughs> hours. I mean, whatever hours. I think it's two yeah. hours or yeah. to get your keep your CPA license. And it's like, okay, can't do this, can't do that, don't do this. Okay, I got it, I got it. Yeah. How do you sell the idea that mm-hmm. I'm, an, I'm an ethics writer or speaker or trainer And I can make it fun and not boring. It's just like a book title. A presentation title is so important. And so I'll give you the example I did for ACFE Global where we met. I did my The Seven Deadly Ethical Sins of Organizations. And we go through what are the seven key things that I'm seeing that organizations are falling victim to when it comes to their ethics. Why are they on the front page of the paper? I think it's all about how you present something. You know, you can talk about fraud cases in the news all you want, but if you put your own spin on it, here's what's happening and here's what we can do about it. Here's the signs to look out for and here's how to train to get your organization not to fall victim to this, you know, one of the ethical sins. I think you know, that to me is the important part. It's got to not just be talking about it, but to provide the what can you do about it. But it all goes back to how you actually organize it, present it, get that catchy title. And and then you make ethics not so boring anymore. That's at least what I've, I've found. I saw that, it was, especially in your presentation, you give a lot of stories, which is so true. And, and with especially with the, yeah. was it one of the big four firms now got in trouble for cheating on oh, yeah. exams or CPA exam? It just seems like it never ends. I just don't it understand. It never ends. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's always, yeah. There's always fodder out there to talk about. There's, there's yes, just always absolutely. Out there. I put a lot of those stories into the you cannot make this stuff up bucket, yep. but it makes for great ethics training. I'll tell you that. The credentials that you got mm-hmm. going in from internal auditor and CPA and CFE, why did you obtain these credentials or is it something that's like a stepping stone 
to what you're doing now. Was there a plan behind all this? First one, the CPA was just kind of what you do, right? right. Uh, for me, you started accounting. I would always recommend you know, get started before you get out of school, before you get into your first job, because then you'll never finish it. You know, they say CPA is can't pass again, right? That's, that's what they say the acronym <laughs> stands for. So, you know, I will always even tell my students, even if you don't want to end up an accountant, which I honestly don't even do my own books anymore, right? I have a tax accountant, I have a bookkeeper. So I don't use my CPA. I keep it up. You know, I, I want to get that education for it. But it's a it's a great foundation. I will never regret getting it when I did. But the other two that I have, I got because of necessity in my job. I mentioned I worked for a financial services company. We did a lot of retirement accounts. Let's see, I think I got my CFE in 2014, so about eight years ago. The hackers decided and fraudsters decided they were going to stop going after people's bank accounts. That was too easy, but people were watching and catching on. They started going after people's retirement accounts. Mm -hmm. Why? Because nobody looks at those, right? You know, they just sit there and they they just gather money. Everybody says, don't look at your retirement account. You don't want to see when the stock market's going down, right? Just leave it alone. But that's when the fraudsters decided, hey, this is the perfect target. Because nobody's looking at these actively. They might look at their monthly statement, their quarterly statement, but during that time, they might not know if they steal their money. So it became, I got to get my CFE out of necessity. As internal auditors, we actually started our own little fraud group within our department, which eventually got branched out of our department because it it was a bigger need. But back in 2014, it was like, I've got to get this. I've got to... uh, to really study up on fraud and how they're doing all this. So that one was really out of necessity. And I will tell you the last one, the CIA, the Certified Internal Auditor, I got that one later in my audit career than most people. I found it very refreshing to go back and study the fundamentals of what it means to be an internal auditor, to look at the standards. I appreciate the standards that the IIA has put out there for us. But I don't think you need that to be a super successful internal auditor. But I will say I wish I had gotten it earlier in my career just to have that foundation at the beginning. So, you know, I think I recommend it for auditors. If you want a new certification, the CIA is a great one to get. So It's just a cool initial, too. I mean, come on, when we say CIA, people, people raise their eyebrows. Exactly. So the CIA, huh? No, no, no. Not those initials, but yeah. Um, and if I can real quick, I also have a fourth letters behind my name, which is the CTQA. It's selfishly the one I like to talk about because it's it's my own sort of certification program that I've developed and it's the Certified Total Quality Auditor. And so my first book is called Total Quality Auditing. And it is what I mentioned earlier. It's my model for how to be a successful internal audit department or internal auditor. And the one that I was mentioning starts with ethics and how do we audit ethics. And so I've developed a an exam. The study materials are my book and my workbook that goes along with it. And then you can become a certified total quality auditor. So that's, of course, my favorite initials because it's based on my own program. So that's a selfish plug for that one. No, the question would be is what makes that somehow different or more important or the extra spin to yeah. that versus a CIA? Because I can see CIA. I got that. Yep. But when you yeah. say internal auditing, that's that's what I could consider the gold standard. What, yes. what do you add to that or what's different than the CIA? 
my TQA, total quality auditing, is built on TQM principles. So most everybody remembers at some point in school learning about total quality management and how TQM principles made businesses successful. Uh And what I like to do is take some of those fundamental principles and I transitioned them to how does this make us a successful internal audit department? And what I have found and been teaching this globally for four years, the feedback that I've received is that management at my company, they know TQM principles and they respect those because they've been proven. You know, Mm -hmm. every world-class organization uses things like things like lean methodology. And so the fact that using those, one of my points of focus for TQA is lean, using those terms that management knows and they respect gets you that much further in that collaboration and that cooperation from management. Because let's face it, internal auditors aren't the most loved usually within their uh, companies. But I try working for the IRS, Joe, come on. Yeah, right. I know. You know, I'm preaching to the choir here. No, I I mean, it's just a way for us to really be that advisor to just kind of get a new reputation. It is taking internal auditor off the title. It is, I want to be there to get, bring quality, these principles that you know, like, and respect already onto the table. So it's just a little different. No. So it's not trying to transform the internal audit department as much as trying to have the internal audit I guess, bring value to the corporation in general? Absolutely. Yeah. I, literally, the subtitle is how internal audit can add real value. That is the baseline. It's We talk about at this term, add value all the time, but how can we really do it? And I think it's by you know bringing those lean techniques to the table. It's by balancing our work between audit and assurance and advising and consulting, because that's the future looking stuff. You know, one of my taglines, is be proactive, not reactive. Auditors need to stop being the inspection department that comes in after the problems have already occurred and start being there to fix problems so they don't happen in the future. So it, it's just all about a mindset shift almost in, in my um, TQA. I was never in the internal auditing, so I understand the concepts, but I don't know exactly what the culture is like in a, in a particular normal business, I can assume there are the nerds with the accountants going, Hey, do you have <laughs> do you have receipts for that expense reimbursement? And that's kinda like the, right. as far as I as far as I can think, um yeah. regarding or imagine that job to be. Mm-hmm. But since you got the inside scoop on it, I, that would make sense to where you're trying to make the internal auditor into a valued member of the team in general for the company. Yes, absolutely. That's the hundred percent that's the goal. Okay. So what was the motivation? You you wrote a couple of books. What was the motivation to start writing? Well, I kind of plugged it already. It's trainings. And I remember, you know, just from sitting on the other side of the table at continuing education trainings, how much more valuable I found the training if I got to take something home, how much more valuable it was if I had a workbook to work in that I could bring home, refer to later, just something that reminded me of the concepts. And of course, that's if they're good concepts, right? And you want to remember them. It started, all started with me with trainings. I wanted my training participants to have that take home gift, resource, whatever you want to call it. And so Total Quality Auditing was the first training program I built. And it was an eight hour training course. And immediately, if I will tell you, if you can do an eight hour training on a topic, you can write a book on that topic. 
you take those presentation slides. It's such a great way to get started on writing a book. And that is exactly how I got started. Really, it was just to supplement the training material and have them have something in their hands, which makes sense because when someone does training, anybody that's training for a living understands that the retention rate, it's like 5%, 10%. I mean, yeah, it's true. There's nothing you do about it except unless you get more engagement. But if you can get them literally to, to read something later, it builds more on retention rate. Uh, and the, the ultimate retention rate is to have someone teach a section of it because they have to learn it. And then they, yes. yeah, I've always yeah, found that no, I learned absolutely. a lot more once I taught something than I did reading anything anyways. Um, <laughs> right. Right. Well, yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, that is literally how I got started and that's how both my first two books I've, I've published three books, but the first two have workbooks that go with them. And I will not do that training or a presentation without giving that book to the audience. It's part of my built-in fee structure because I want them to have that. Um, oh. So that's, that's how it all started. So your latest book is what? The latest book is on ethics. I actually call it my COVID baby because what else did we do when all the presentations got canceled in March of 2020? Well, I decided to sit down and finally write my ethics book. As I mentioned, TQA starts with ethics. My second book is called Your Road, Your Choices. It has an entire chapter on our character choice in life. So of course on ethics. So it was time for me to put those two chapters from each book in a bigger book on just ethics. And that's exactly what I did. Started about March of 2020 and it was published December of 2020. So everything I have experienced in my corporate career, uh, I have experienced as an entrepreneur. It is every ethics training that I've done to me brings it all together. It starts with personal ethics, then it goes into leadership ethics, then it has everything you need to to be an, an ethical organization. And then it's got a last final bonus chapter on how to be a good auditor looking for ethics within your organization. So it's kind of, it runs the gamut of anything you want to know about ethics. It is called Becoming the Everyday Ethicist. Subtitle is Doing Things the Right Way the First Time. And it is called that because that is my trademark, the everyday ethicist. What happens, I think, in society is we forget about ethics in the small things, and it's a slippery slope. I mean, we've heard this. This is how frauds start, right? They start small. So if we can get society back to thinking about things each and every day, all of those character choices, um, and if we all become the everyday ethicists, I think maybe that will eliminate some of the bigger problems we're seeing in the world. So that's just my outlook on it. All right. So I'm going to have to give you a little bit of a quiz on this one here. Oh, okay. Here we go. You you buy something, the lady gives you 25 cents more. You said, oh, you know, it's 25 cents. You, you you messed up my change here. I'm being ethical. Here's the right of money, amount of money. You make a mistake. Yeah. How many times I've actually gone somewhere and <laughs> the business has made a mistake, but now I'm 20 miles away. <laughs> and I'm sitting here going, all right, yeah. this is not really worth my time to go spend mm-hmm. $10 in gas to go <laughs> right, talk right, to right. someone about a $1 overpay that I got. Or right. th- there's an extra fry in the bag I didn't ask for. You know, they <laughs> right, charged me for right. two fries. I got three. It happens every day, right? Where do you draw the line on this one? Yeah. So I'm going to put you in the middle bucket, right? There's three character choices that you can make. 
you wake up every day and you make one. And the middle bucket is called the ethical rationalizer. And I know that sounds a little negative, but I always say in my presentations, we are all ethical rationalizers. And none of us are as ethical as we think we are, because this is where 90, I'm going to say 95% of society lives. I'm just throwing out a number. Sure. There. But we do rationalize. It is only 25 cents. It's going to cost us more. Oh, well, you know, I'll give them the 25 cents the next time I'm there. We do rationalize. That's just part of the world. And I think it is up to us to decide when we are okay rationalizing or not. That is a personal choice. That's a personal decision. I say, hopefully I can get more people in that everyday ethicist bucket, not just when it's convenient for them. That's my goal. But I don't want anybody to be in the first bucket, which is called the big me, where we're all about ourselves, where we're actually excited when people give us extra change, <laughs> right? That's, that's the, you know, I'm, I'm more about getting people out of the big me bucket. I'm okay if you're an ethical rationalizer sometime, I'm going to give you a pass. But of course, I want you to be an everyday ethicist. So how's that for an answer for you? That's a sorry answer is all I can say. Yeah. Because that, that, does not make, that does not help me at all. I don't know if I'm going to travel the other side of the world to give back 25 cents to the street vendor who overpaid me when I found out a thousand miles later. But you're right. Personal choice. <laughs> it really is. Ethics is very personal. I tell people that every... Uh, it's a lot more touchy. Uh, you know, I've had people leave my trainings and go... I didn't know that you were going to make me think so hard. <laughs> so I, I take that as a compliment. Oh, and you also have a podcast you're part of, I think. Uh, it's called... Uh, Friday Fraudsters. Yeah, Friday, Friday Fraudsters. Fraudster. Yeah, we started... It was friends talking about fraud on Fridays, but that was way too long, right? So now we're just Friday Fraudsters. And yeah, it's me, Kelly Paxton, and Robert Barry. Robert's an, an audit guy, so his tagline is that audit guy. Kelly Paxton is obviously does pink collar crime, for those of you that might know her. So she really takes the fraud. And then I'm, of course, the everyday ethicist. So we've got the audit, the fraud, and the ethics covered. Uh, we do it live on LinkedIn every Friday. So it's fun. With you writing as many books as you have, I think you said three, what would mm -hmm. you recommend to someone who's just got an itch to scratch, who says, boy, I've got a book inside of me. I just want to get it done. Um, yeah. What do you recommend? Okay, so a book that I wish I had read before I wrote my first book. Write this down. It's called Self-Publish and Succeed. And the subtitle I love. I love subtitles of books. The No Boring Books Way to Write a Nonfiction Book That Sells. And it's by Julie Broad, B-R-O-A-D. And she just gives you that, um, I, I'd say, insider scoop on how to really write and self-publish a book. And it's got some fantastic tips and tricks in it. So if you want to start, I'd say, read a book on the subject. I'm a book reader. Grab that book, and then I bet you will be motivated to, to get started. On top of the other things we've talked about, which is if you can present on the topic, you can write a book on it. So mm -hmm. you got to have a good topic. Get the topic and then read the nuts and bolts books about how to do it. Now, would it change your mind? We're talking about nonfiction, right? So would it change your yes. mind if it's a glorified business card versus something I want it to be a bestseller? Um, I'm going to say no. I think that if you are that passionate and want to write a book, I think all of us want to get our thoughts out to the world. Like, yes, maybe I love I love giving out my book. Right. Instead of a business card, I think it's a fantastic thing to give away. So I, I understand why people feel that way. 
But I think if you really want to write a book, are any of us going to be sad if it's the next bestseller on the New York Times list? No, absolutely not. So I don't think you're going to put out a book that you wouldn't want to make it big. So I just, I'm a huge proponent of make it quality that you want to be more than a business card. So I I don't know if I answered your question or not, but I'd say pour your heart and soul into it if you're going to do it. I understand that you don't want to have misspellings and, you know, grammar problems and a sorry looking book title or a book (laughs) or a book cover. And I understand all that. I guess what I'm looking for is there is an element of should it be, I think the standard is like 200 and something pages versus 100 pages. I mean, there are certain times where, I don't know, people say write a book and some people use it as a business card and some people use it Uh as I want to change the world. And yeah, but maybe right. your book is not supposed to change the world. Your woodworking 101, how to do something in, you know, with five bucks worth of lumber is not going to change mm-hmm. the world as much as here I'm a thought leader and here's my book yeah. on, you know, on how to think. Right, right. So that's the reason why I was asking. Kelly Paxton is a funny example. She always says her daughter gives her a hard time because her she calls her book a pamphlet, not a book. Yeah. Because it's, you know, and she's like, no, no, it's over 100 pages. So it's technically a book, you know, not a pamphlet. It totally depends on your topic to me. For instance, my ethics book is triple the size of my other two books. Why? Because universities are using it to teach their ethics courses. And I needed it to be thorough for a purpose. Right. And I wanted to capture all the different angles of ethics, personal, leadership, organizational, as an auditor. There was a lot to me that I wanted to get in there. Whereas my other books are like we talked about, they are, I want you to be able to get my six points of focus on each of these trainings and take it home and be able to refer to it. So they are much shorter, right? They're more of the 120, 50 pages versus the 310 that my ethics books is. So think about your purpose. What what is it going to be used for? Who's going to be your audience? Who's going to read it? And then tailor it for them. Where can people find your books or services? All of the books are on Amazon. The best way to find anything, though, about me is my website, which is auditconsultingeducation.com. And everything, services, books, presentations, demo reel, all of it's on there. Are there any resources and training that helped you along your journey that you could share? I am constantly reading, I would say, books. Books are my biggest resource. I mean, I have read probably every leadership book out there. Every book on ethics that's out there, read. And if it's not read, Audible is so easy nowadays, right? I always get those people that's like, oh, I don't have time to read. Podcasts like this, like your podcast and so many others, they're such great resources. They've helped me. Um, The ACFE local chapters and global and same with IIA, you know, get involved, volunteer. All of those things have helped me tremendously throughout my my entrepreneur career, for sure. I have found out that uh, there's only a few handful of books that really would, I would sit there and say, oh, that changed my life or the way I think about certain things. But it's always meeting the people who are actually are doing the work. To me, it's, it's the biggest resource. Yeah, I would agree. It definitely depends on the book, uh, you know, and the topic for sure. But yeah, people, you can't replace people behind the topic at all. So I agree with that. What do you wish you had known before you started? Probably let's stick with the people, the people in my life right now, you yourself, Leah, who we bonded with at the conference as well. Leah Wheatholter is amazing. Kelly Paxton, I mentioned not getting to know people earlier in my career, even in my corporate career. I wish that I had reached out and networked more 
at the beginning. And now I am just so overwhelmed with the support. I just hosted a conference called the Fraud Retreat that I'm hoping to have annually. And I couldn't have done it without the people around me. And I think I thought at the very beginning, even in my corporate career, I could do everything myself. And if I could go back and even start then or as an entrepreneur, I would have surrounded myself with people to help me sooner. I think that's that's probably my biggest downfall, thinking I could do it all myself. Knowing what I know now, there's a certain couple of things that networking has such a bad connotation to it. It's more like, it here's does. my business card. Um, good to meet you. It's kind of very impersonal. I think networking, yeah. uh, maybe it's the introvert in me. I just have a, it's just one of those things where I just never did. I, it's, it makes me uncomfortable. I can speak in front yeah. of a thousand people. Not a problem. Do a podcast, not a problem. One-on-one, having a conversation, recording it, not a problem. Eat dinner with somebody, not a problem. Go ask me to go talk to those three people sitting in the room by themselves. No. I just I just, don't want to do it. I don't like doing that stuff. Hi, I'm important. What are you doing? I mean, it's it's not just not me. I just have a hard time doing it. I always have to call myself a recovering introvert, I guess. Um, yeah, working, I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I get the best survey feedback I got from the fraud retreat that it was um, informal networking that kind of pushed you out of your box without being pushy about it. It was something exactly like that. And I thought that is the perfect compliment, you know, because I don't want it to be uncomfortable. I want it to be natural and organic. And I want you to want to talk to the people at your table. And so I was that was the biggest compliment to me. I could see that. Yep. Yeah, completely understand. Yeah. So I'm working on my networking skills. You know, oh. I, I, it's just one of those things where I, oh, I just handing a business card to someone's like, I mean, no, I don't know. Right. Maybe because I'm a yeah, different, totally I'm in a different set. I'm in a different part of life now where it's like, eh, you know, just get to know people and hang out with them, and if you can help them, fine. If you don't, fine too. It's it's okay. It's not yeah. me trying to get something. At, maybe a, I think networking is I'm trying to get your business. Here's my card. Or I want to be employed, here's my card. It's now, I guess maybe the way I look at it is, you know, we have some common interests. I do this, you do that. Let me hear what you do. I find find it interesting. And that's kind Mm -hmm. of it. If you need something, holler at me. If you don't, that's fine too. I mean, it's it's one of those deals, you know. You got to take the selfish out of networking to make it successful, in my mind. You know, it's got to be, you got to take that me off the table in networking. And then I think it really works. Well said, well said. Looking back on your career, what is the biggest mistake or loss opportunity? You talked about, you wish you would network more. The biggest mistake, though, uh, if you want to talk about that, is partnering with people that don't have the same values as me. When you start out as an entrepreneur, you just kind of want to say yes to everything. And I found myself in the first year in relationships I wasn't comfortable with. And I'd say, you know, my biggest mistake was not really kind of standing up and saying, no, you know, your values don't quite match my values. I don't think this would be a good partnership. So money is great. And I think you're listening to this podcast and you want to go out on your own. You don't compromise your values by saying yes, just because of we need this extra job or, you know, that's at least my personal take on it. And I think there was a few of those yeses that I, I look back on and I wish I had had said no to them. And I, you know, I did have to figure out how to get out of those business partnerships or, or relationships uh, because they weren't comfortable for me. So just don't compromise your values. That's, that's my biggest takeaway there. You've probably have heard that you are the, the average of five people you hang out with. Yes, I have. Yes. <laughs> yes, it's very, it's very true. Hang out with people that yes, you absolutely. that you want to 
be sort of like, not what you don't like. Yes. Yeah, for sure. For sure. All right. Ready for the final four questions? I'm ready. All right. Final four. You have gone through internal audit. You've written three books. You started your own business. You're a trainer, speaker, and author. What is your biggest motivation now? Educating students, younger generation, whether that is about internal audits or whether it is about ethics. You know, I'm in higher ed. I love teaching at different universities. It's not lucrative by any means, uh, but it is my motivation now. I love just thinking about the fact I might have an impact on that generation. My two-word answer is educating students. What book or books have changed your life or thinking? The best book, and I, I will, I've said this um, several times. Other I've than read, the three that you've, um, that you've written yourself, what other books? No, <laughs> no, yeah, not, no, I would never say one of my books ever. Um, it's actually by an investigative journalist. I follow a lot of journalists, I, uh, investigative journalists specifically, because I love the work they do. I love how they dig deep uh, into those issues that they are just passionate about. I always say internal auditors need to be more like investigative journalists. But the one book is called Dope Sick. And uh, it's dealers, doctors, and the drug companies that addicted America. One of the big case studies that I do in my four-hour ethics training is ethics and the opioid crisis. Mm -hmm. And we go through all the different players involved from the manufacturers to the distributors, to the doctors, to the medical associations, to the schools and colleges, to lawyers, to advertisers. We talk about everybody involved in the opioid crisis. And when I read the book Dope Sick by Beth Macy, it really changed. It changed my life. It is such a unique perspective on a crisis in America today. I just, I loved it. It really changed my thinking on things. So that's my book. Share something that you've purchased in the last 12 months, less than $100, that you enjoyed or made your life easier. If it's good enough for Joe Irvin, it's good enough for the rest of the world, what, what would that be? Oh, my gosh. Oh, okay. Um, two things. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do two quick things. Two quick things. One of them is a traveling ring light, which is going to sound so nerdy, but I... COVID softened, I'm going to say a little bit, and we st we all started traveling again. I realized I was going to have to do some of my virtual presentations on the road. So I literally bought this mini ring light that I can clip to my laptop, and I take it everywhere with me now. <laughs> so that's probably just from a, from a trainer speaker perspective. But one thing in my office that I cannot believe I didn't buy sooner was multiple mouses. Like all of you guys, I have a desktop, I have a laptop, I have a client laptop that I use for about five months out of the year. I literally was unplugging a mouse and plugging it in that device. So I bought myself two new mouses. So they each have their own and it was like 20 bucks well spent. So I just, why not make your life easier by doing simple things like that? But I never did. So that's let me, mine. Let me make sure I get this right. You would unplug the USB of your mouth or the wireless yes. and, and take it and then go put it somewhere else. Yes, every time. <laughs> and sometimes in a day, I would work on all three computers and I would literally be unplugging the USB mouse and plugging it in like the laptop or whatever. And I'm yeah, like, why yeah, am I, I know. doing this? Why am I doing this? So talk about inefficient. And let me guess. You probably walk to the computer going... I don't have my mouse right here. Let me get up exactly. and go to the go to the other room and get the mouse and bring it back over here. Oh my gosh, you got me. Yep, that's it. So how simple is that to make your life more lean and efficient? 
I could see that because I actually had the same problem many about a year or so ago, and I said, like, "I'm getting two mouses. Like, this is ridiculous." Especially yep. when I got the, oh, I got one of those ergonomic ones. It's kind of nice. You don't have Ooh, to move. Oh yeah, have you, you went extra fancy, like a trackball. <laughs> have you had those before? I have not. I actually, I I only buy the ones that are silent uh, click because I use them when I'm presenting, and so I have this special silent mouse that I absolutely love, and it's actually pretty cheap. So I have not tried a fancy ergonomic one. Oh, I'm telling you, once you go to ergonomic, especially if you're on a desk or whatever, all you got to do is just move your thumb. Oh, it's yeah. a world Good. changer because I'm, I'm not moving my wrist anymore. Well, there you go. So now I've learned something new too. I had a guy on my podcast, literally, he shipped me from Amazon. He bought one, bought me one. Said so you need to have it. It's, oh. like, it's like $30, oh. $40. Hours. I, I bought three of them now. Oh, that's awesome. All right. Well, that's probably my next purchase then. If you had to do something else, someone said, you know what? You can no longer speak. You can't no longer do your presentations. You lost your CPA license. You're done. What would you be doing? Okay. So everybody will probably laugh, but I actually admitted to this at the fraud retreat last week. I love arranging flowers and I love giving flowers to people. I actually stopped at the store on the way to the conference last week and I bought, I think, 15 bouquets of flowers and I had borrowed vases from my neighbors and I arranged flowers on every single one of the the tables at the fraud retreat. And it just made the room colorful and chipper. And I got so many compliments on such a simple thing to me that I absolutely love doing that it made me really happy. So if I could quit, if I had to quit my job, I would literally become a florist. I think that's my, uh, my secret passion. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you uh, for your friendship and thank you so much for your classes that you're giving on ethics. I do. I really do appreciate it. And I hope you change the world with it. Awesome. Well, I hope to see you in Seattle next year for the ACC Global again so we can hang out again. I'm looking forward to it. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks.